On today's episode, I interview Jordan Harbinger, the man behind the Art of Charm podcast. Strap in your seatbelts and grab a notebook. You're going to want to take notes on this episode. Jordan breaks down how to launch a killer podcast and how networking helped him leave behind a big law firm in New York to build his own empire. Today's episode is brought to you by SEM Rush. Started in 2008 with one mission, to make online competition fair and transparent with equal opportunities for all. To find out how SEM Rush can help you compete with the big boys, go to servenomaster.com backslash SEM Rush today. Are you tired of dealing with your boss? Do you feel underpaid and underappreciated? If you want to make it online, fire your boss and start living your retirement dreams now. Then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Serve No Master Podcast, where you'll learn how to open new revenue streams and make money while you sleep. Presented live from a tropical island in the South Pacific by best-selling author Jonathan Green. Now, here's your host. excited to finally have you as a guest on my show since I've been on your show twice many, many moons ago. And I can't wait to hear your side of things. We met through networking, so I thought it'd be a great opportunity to bring on someone who's just a true master networker and built his entire business through social connections. And I'd love to hear a bit of your story, how you transitioned from your previous career working in the corporate sector and taking over and being your own boss. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. I started as a Wall Street attorney, and I essentially got hired there through a friend of a friend. I had good grades, and I had great notes in law school, and I I basically had been going by this strategy of fly by the seat of my pants because I was an irresponsible kid for the most part, and I showed up to basically what it was back in the day. This is like 2005, 2006. All the companies that were hiring lawyers would recruit you they'd set up shop in a hotel there'd be like four days of interviews that are 15 20 minutes long and then you'd get callbacks from the firms that were interested in you and you had to do this dumb thing because of course this is the university of michigan go blue but this place was hell-bent on not just letting everybody go for the ones they wanted to they had to make it quote-unquote fair so you had to prioritize which firms you wanted, and then they would assign you these limited spaces. So I showed up without having booked anything because I was overseas working at the time. I literally just didn't book anything. I just decided I'm not I'm not doing this. I'm not going to play by this game. And naturally, I had just no interviews, no shot at anything. And I, I started rolling around looking for openings and looking for who is – who is a no-show, and I got a couple interviews that way, and I ran into an old friend of mine who said, oh, you know, my old roommate's here. You should go say hi. And I said, great, what room? And he said, oh, he's, you know, helping the partner recruit uh, from our school in room whatever, 207. So I show up there. It's lunchtime, and he says, give me your resume, Jordan. I'll throw it in the pile. And I said, oh, yeah, cool. I, I don't really have an interview lined up. He goes, hold on. And he asked the partner if I could interview with him while he was eating lunch. So I did my first job interview over a Subway sandwich where I watched somebody else eat lunch, I should say. And I ended up getting this job. And I thought, wow, that's this really weird concept of social capital in action. And then when I worked at the law firm itself, the guy who'd hired me, Dave, he was never in the office. This is a guy from Brooklyn with a tan. And I thought, this is strange. Like, what does he know that I don't know? So 
I asked him one day and he said, look, I bring in deal flow. I don't have to bill hours as much because I'm bringing in deals and that's worth more than simply billing hours. And we did the math and I figured out that his time was actually more valuable outside the firm than it was inside the firm. Because if he brings in a million dollar law deal, the the math worked out to something ridiculous like a thousand dollars an hour or something for his time. I mean, it was just ludicrous what this guy was worth when you broke it down on an hourly basis. And he wasn't, this wasn't a thousand dollars an hour working behind a desk on a Sunday night with all the other partners. This was a thousand dollars an hour on a golf course or at a charity dinner. So I had originally been accustomed to outworking everyone. I'd originally been accustomed to being uh, one of the smarter guys in high school. That's what got me through high school. Outworking everybody got me through college and law school. And now here I am where everybody who's working on Wall Street has been filtered in for those qualities. And the playing field is, again, even. And David given me a, a heads up as to, look, this is the secret thir- This is the secret path right, to getting to the top. This is the game that everybody else at the top level is playing that you learn about Basically, once it's too late, and this is the same for every industry, you learn about the network that you needed to have after you got passed up for a promotion or something like that, and then you have a temper tantrum about how it's all about who you know and it's not fair, instead of doing what I started doing, which is realizing that I'm oblivious to the secret game being played around me, and I want to learn the rules, and I want to make it happen. And so I started dedicating just my entire life to figuring out how do I create social capital, make friends, leverage relationships, and keep those relationships uh, fresh enough where if I need anything from these particular interactions or these relationships, I can get it. Because otherwise, you end up being that bitter 40-something-year-old guy or girl who goes, yeah, it's all about who you know, and you put stank on the end of it. You know, I want you to go, all right, I've got an advantage that most people aren't even paying attention to at all. I love that part of your story. You said one term in there that I thought's interesting, social capital. You used it a couple of times, and maybe you could explain what that means. Sure. So what I mean by social capital is essentially I've got relationship referral currency. I've got personal relationships and friendships, uh, familial relationships, favors and trades. Those all kind of lump into social capital because referral currency where I say, hey, Jonathan, I hooked you up with this business guy. I was hoping you could hook me up with this other business guy. Friends do that. You're referring a connection. That's all fine and good. But there's something to be said for social capital, which is a bigger circle on the Venn diagram, whereas referral currency has to do with mutual introductions and is a part of social capital. Social capital is every relationship that you have, personal or business, every everyone that owes you one, everyone that you owe one, every speaking engagement that you can get, everybody who knows you is included in that. The platform that you use, such as my show, The Art of Charm, whereby I use social capital to both get guests and I use that platform to gain social capital or referral currency. So it's basically just any type of networking or relationship or interworkings of those things in between those things. And of course, it's just easier to say social capital than to say referral currency and dot, 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 four other concepts that tend to be lumped together, especially when you're new to this. It just sounds, and I don't like the word networking because what that sounds like is a dirty word where you show up at some lame networking event sponsored by Meetup or whatever, and you hand out as many business cards as you can and then go get a burger, which is a terrible way to, do, to try to build relationships. So I don't like using that word because it's been tainted. It's been shat upon too many times. And so we don't use it really. 
because it's it's got a negative stigma attached to it. I usually say juice instead of social currency. It's like, oh, I've got some juice with those people. I've got some juice in that industry. So now you're working as a lawyer and you found out that you can make more money as a lawyer, not lawyering, but networking or social currency exchanges. How did you begin to move forward in your career from that point when you learned that critical lesson? What essentially happened here is I was working for the firm. I started creating relationships, dedicating my time to that. And this is 2006, 2007. Shortly thereafter, we hit just a crazy economic crisis, as everyone is sure remembers. And what happened from there is that instead of letting us go as first-year associates, which would have been just a major black mark on the firm's reputation, they just decided to pay us for the next, I think, 11 months. And and basically were giving us less and less work and eventually said, look, you don't even need to show up. You guys need to go start your career at another firm. We're going to help pay for job search services and all this other stuff. And I just went, look, I'm already running the Art of Charm. I'd been doing it for a few years. It had been a side gig that was slowly scaling. And here was the perfect opportunity, a salary and full benefits from a Wall Street firm for the next 10 months. Talk about great runway. And so I basically took my salary and invested it in the company and never went back. That sounds like a dream come true. It was like winning the lottery, except I won a smaller amount of money that kept us alive all the way through the very first beginning stage of the relationship. It's funny because people go, oh, man, you wasted all that time in law school. And I I agree, like I spent a lot of money in law school. I spent a lot of time in law school. But at the end of the day, it was the runway that I needed to start the company. Because if you count law school in, which is where we started Art of Charm, and then you go through that year that we left, that I left law school and worked, you're looking at a three to four year runway that was just paid for. First in loan money that I paid off later, and all, and then in the salary that I was paid by the firm. I wouldn't have been able to start the company otherwise. So, getting laid off from my first job out of college was the best thing that ever happened to me. You started The Art of Charm, and then you launched your podcast, I think, around the same time. I've been listening for almost 10 years to your show, and watching it really grow, you get some really amazing guests. How did you start out, and how did you grow to having one of the biggest, most successful podcasts? I know for a while, you guys even had a radio show. Yeah, we were on satellite radio for a while. This month is a 10-year anniversary of The Art of Charm, so it took forever. When we first started, nobody knew what a podcast was, so I got all kinds of nasty replies and also just got straight up ignored by a lot of people. Some mutual friends of yours and mine from back in the day, like some of the weirdo crew that you and I used to run with, would say things like, lose my number, I'm out right now, or something like that. And it was kind of funny because, of course, years later... And not too many years later, those same people were like, what do I need to do to get on your show? And I just remember thinking, maybe show a little bit of love and respect. And it just took forever to get things off the ground. But yeah, now I I had Tony Hawk, the pro skater on. I had General McChrystal come on the show, Gary Vaynerchuk, Peter Diamandis. There's a lot of people that don't even go on small TV shows coming on the show now. And it's it's been it's been great. But yeah, it's been a 10 year slog. Do people often approach you and ask to be guests, or is it more each guest is someone you seek out? Each guest is somebody that we seek out. We get pitched a lot, but now you can imagine there's this whole like influencer economy. There's all the there's some sort of pride attached to being a quote unquote thought leader. And essentially, a lot of the people that come and pitch are self published. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It just means that their audience is not going to be large enough to make this a really high value piece. And there's a lot of people who are offended right now saying, just because I don't have a great audience doesn't mean I don't have great content. You might have great content, but why should I gamble on it? 
right? And this is exactly what I went through when I first started the show. And so I try to be as kind about it as possible. But I also realize that if I continually give interviews or give a platform or give our platform to everybody that wants it, it's doing a disservice to the audience, which is much larger than the one person who wants to sell their latest thing. So it's a fine balance and you really do have to be very, very careful who you get. And, and frankly, people who are super accessible and are on a PR tear are going to be on every show. I'm sure that you've noticed there's a trend in these entrepreneur shows that it's like, Everybody has a show where they interview entrepreneurs and every single one of them asks the same set of pre-scripted questions and they turn their show, which is their platform, an integral part of social capital, they turn it into a commodity where it's just like the other show that has the other person doing the exact same thing. You hit on something there that really connects with me and I want to dial into that a little bit. There's nothing I hate more than an interview that's a repeat of another person's interview where you could almost cut and paste out anyone's questions. How do you design an interview that's unique? How do you come up with questions that other people haven't asked? And how do you make sure that it's got that uh, Jordan Art of Charm flavor to it? The way that I prep for shows is just super key. What I used to do and what a lot of show hosts do, especially when they're new, is they go, cool, and they Google the person, they find their bio, and that becomes the intro, and then they read the Wikipedia article, if that, and that becomes the basis for the interview. I read the Wikipedia. I read the negative reviews on Amazon. I read their Yelp reviews for their business. I read articles that they've written on LinkedIn. I read their entire book. I might read another book that they wrote earlier that they're not currently promoting. I will reach out to my network and ask for their friends, and I can get stories about them that aren't public yet that are maybe really funny and I will throw that into a document a Google Doc all those notes and then I will go through those notes with my producer a few days before the show and I will write questions that I have about my own notes so it takes like 10 hours and that goes back to the idea that I'm used to outworking people because I've worked on a lot of the skills of presentation and hosting and all those things, but I will tell you that one of the best ways to get ahead is still just good old-fashioned hustle and outworking people, and it's great to be able to do that because I know that most people who are doing online business are looking for shortcuts or they're looking for ways to scale, and this is their nightmare, taking a ton of time to prep a piece of content, prep that they can't outsource. It's just one of my competitive advantages being able to do all that. And then I throw, of course, the knowledge and questions that I have into that document that I would have from the last 10 years of interviews that I've done in a similar space. That's why we don't have a variety show where it's like today fitness, tomorrow financial management, now something else. We focus on psychology and human performance and relationships. That That's such a narrow area that I can always call BS on somebody who's just f blowing smoke because I've read the studies. I've read the other books in their field. I've talked to their, their colleagues, the authors. I can fact checked them if, if necessary in real time on the show and then of course afterwards if they say something that doesn't sound right I can email the world's foremost authority on that subject and get a response a lot of the time so people bring their a game which brings up the quality of the show uh, outside of just my prep people know they're not going to get away with anything and so they come by without just being on autopilot and giving their spiel yeah I think that's really good a lot of what I teach my audience will know this is that my competitive advantage as far as people ask, how do I write so many books? How do I create such solid products in areas I don't know? And I always say it's 90% research. I never get writer's block. And it's because I always have the deepest outline possible. So I think 
It's the same technique for any type of content. Whoever researches the most creates the best content. Yeah, it can be that level. I mean, of course, the research has to be fit with the ability to present it in a compelling way. But yes, you can you can do a lot by just putting in the hours, knowing what you're doing and outworking the competition. That's for absolutely sure. Now that you've been growing your podcast for 10 years or watching you go from just interviewing like friends of friends to now generals and really major celebrities, how has your networking and interactions changed now that you've gone from the guy asking to the guy saying, I don't have enough time? One thing to remember is that everybody's always trying to reach up. So I make sure to network across and quote unquote down as well as up because it's very tempting to go, oh, I only want to talk to Richard Branson. And it's like, well, yeah, you and everybody else. But where did you start? So it's very important for you when you get to the top, so to speak, or the middle where where I think most of us are to send the elevator back down for the next guy. And so that means being very giving and very generous. So my generosity has actually gone up now that I know these principles, because I like to give very freely, I like to give very generously, I like to scale my networking efforts by introducing people inside my network to each other. So what that essentially means is that the bulk of my networking and relationships have to do with me introducing you to my CPA, introducing my lawyer to another potential client. I don't have to do most of the work myself, so that's allowed me to scale. I'm merely introducing other elements of my network to each other. And that's great because that's infinitely scalable, well, almost infinitely scalable. You could send 100 emails a day introducing people to one another up and until you hire somebody for your company that does that full time if you really wanted to. That's very powerful. And doing so generously is extremely important because when you're at the bottom, you think, I don't have enough to give. You don't want to give a connection to somebody next to you because you're worried they'll get the jump on you. At the top, you're not doing that at all. At the top, you're focused on giving much more than you take. Much, much more. Another thing that I've learned that I rely on heavily is I don't keep score. So if I help somebody with something, I don't think this is quid pro quo. I'm going to ask them for something later or they owe me something for this. And I encourage people not to do that either because it creates weird situations where you're writing covert contracts this means if I help you with something and I'm keeping score, then the next time I help you and if I haven't asked you for anything or if I've asked you for something that you can't provide or you won't provide for some reason that's valid, uh, I might start to get really irritated. And I might even say like, okay, well, I'm not helping Jonathan anymore because, you know, I introduced him to my CPA and my lawyer and then I asked him to introduce me to so-and-so and he couldn't do it or it didn't work out. That's a bad and unhealthy mindset because it makes your networking and relationships transactional. And that's the opposite of what you want. You don't want to keep score. You want to give very freely. You want to definitely give in a way that's scalable for you. And that will help you just skyrocket your results. And I'll illustrate this with a little story. When I moved to Los Angeles, I had a toothache and I didn't have a car. I had just moved here. I probably still had stuff in boxes. And I got a toothache and I went to a bunch of dentists and called a bunch of dentists and they all said, look, we don't take new patients or your insurance sucks or, you know, go to the ER. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a bad situation. So in desperation, I posted on Facebook and I said, look, how do I how do I get a dentist in short notice? If anybody knows anyone, please help. I'm dying over here. And this guy that I don't even know commented on my public posts and said, my aunt's a dentist in Hollywood. I'm happy to call her and see if she can fit you in. So he did that. I went and got my tooth fixed. Of course, I thanked him, and he ends up sending me his graphic design portfolio. Now, I didn't need a graphic designer, and I thought, yeah, sure, I'll keep my ear to the ground for you, whatever. 
But four days later, somebody emailed me and their web designer had crapped out. And they needed more graphics heavy, more sort of digital design. So I sent him the portfolio and said, look, if, if this helps, I know this guy. He just sent it to me. No judgments. I haven't worked with him. And he said, great, I'm desperate. Introduce me. That guy ended up getting a full-time job for, I don't know, 70, 80K a year in the city of LA doing what he wanted to do. He was literally a barista before that, trying to find a job in his niche. And he got one because he helped me find a dentist on Facebook. So this encompasses the whole give freely and generously. ABG is what we call it. Always be giving instead of ABC, always be closing. The reason this is so important is because if he were looking for a job, he could have sent that portfolio to literally every person that he knew because we didn't know each other and he wouldn't have gotten that same job because he didn't have that connection. The reason he got that connection is because he helped me find a dentist on Facebook, something that in theory and at that point in time had no possibility of giving him any sort of reward whatsoever. All he did was refer his aunt, who didn't need the business, ended up having to open up early just to help me out with that because she was packed up with patients. They did me a favor and he ended up getting a job from me. The lesson here is that the opportunities are over the horizon. You can't see them until later on. So if he had been thinking, what's in it for me, instead of I just want to help this guy, he wouldn't have ended up with his career. He would have literally had to start his entire career later on, and he would have been stuck doing the barista thing and keeping his graphic design as a hobby instead of his occupation. And that, for me, was a super powerful lesson. That's amazing. I had a very similar story when I was in London, and I got my tooth broken at kickboxing, and a friend of a friend was a dentist, and he fixed it. And so... I only looked like a monster for half a day, but if I didn't have networking, I wouldn't have been able to get my tooth fixed. It's amazing we both have dental stories. You've been doing your show for 10 years now, and that means you've got hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Are there any people that when you first interviewed them, they were so small, and now they've grown into something really, really big? Actually, Gary Vaynerchuk, we first, we first interviewed him, I want to say in 2007 or 2008, He's been going just absolutely bananas, working, outworking everybody, working on everything. So yeah, we were we met him when he was in a shared office space, and his office was so small that his personal office that if you wanted to get in, you had to like move out of the way of the door to close it. You couldn't close the door while you were in it unless you stepped over to where his desk was. That's how now he's got his own Manhattan firm with a giant, you know, Vayner Media behind the receptionist desk. It's just absolutely crazy. That's that's one that's become really really big. Of course, we we interviewed Tim Ferriss in something like 2008, 2009. Um he's done nothing but grow since then as well. So yeah, there's been a lot of people uh who we've had on the show that whose profile has since just exploded. And it was great to get in early, I'll tell you that. Looking to the future, where you're going to go over the next 10 years. What is your vision for Art of Charm? What's your vision for the podcast? And what's your view of the growing landscape of entrepreneurship? Well, for me, I want to focus on growing the show. I love to see the show grow. I love doing the show. I love talking about the show. I love teaching the audience on the show. So I am focused on that. I really do enjoy it. I think it's super fun. And I love growing the business that results from the show. Um, shooting for bigger and better guests, doing bigger and better prep, making the production that much better inches at a time. It's all It's all just a labor of love. And it's just been a blessing to be able to do something like this as my occupation. It's what I wanted to do when I was eight. Had I paid attention to what I wanted to do when I was eight years old, which is be a talk show host on the radio, 
I would have saved myself a lot of <laughs> educational debt, that's for sure. But that's what we're focused on, and I'm, I'm very excited about that moving forward. We're pushing 2.5 million downloads every month, and I'd like to double that. I know you had that radio show for a while on satellite radio. Is that something you'd want to go back into or doing television or is really podcasting the medium that's your wave of the future? I really like podcasting because it's quickly eclipsing radio in terms of popularity. I know people go, no, there's still 60 million radio listeners. That number is going down. And younger people who are in their millennial generation and Generation Y, they are not listening to the radio. Uh, Digital media is absolutely the future. Anybody who doesn't see that probably works in radio. I went to a radio conference a few years ago. I gave a panel on podcasting, and they didn't let me pick the panel. It was just like these random folks that had podcasts that they had found, and I moderated it. And then afterwards, this radio exec came up and was like, podcasts, uh, those still exist? (laughs) And all of his friends like chuckled and laughed and everything. And I thought like, whatever. And I went back the next year to teach radio executives how to shift into the digital medium. And I remember seeing that guy and I was like, fancy meeting you here. Looks like podcasts are back in force, huh? And he was just like, what? I mean, he had no idea. He was 60, 70 years old and just very cocky, like, oh, people still listen to podcasts. And then he must have gone back. And at some point in the next few months, somebody put a a printed out memo on his desk or sent him an email that went, here's our market share being eaten to death by free stuff that people are producing in their friend's basement, what do we do about it? And the answer was try and play a harried game of catch-up by hiring guys like me to come and talk to these digital media managers who have no idea how to save a radio brand. It was kind of this bittersweet thing because I thought, wow, there's a lot of people who are going to lose their jobs because you thought this was a joke instead of going digital 10 years ago. And now they're paying the price. And and so when I look at this, I don't even think about radio being anything even remotely, remotely current. I mean, satellite radio is great because they have great talent, Stern, and all those folks are on there. But the second those big dogs retire or even just shift into digital media because they can make more doing it there, depending on how much money Sirius is paying them, that whole service is going to fold. Or it's going to start bringing in podcast talent, which they're already doing, in order to make up for the fact that they really can't compete and forget about FM and AM radio. The only reason those even still exist is because there's a core cadre of 40 and 50-something people who don't have digital in their car and aren't tech-savvy. But as car manufacturers catch up to the fact that 4G can stream things in the car and they put in digital radios and they put in Spotify, it's over. That will be one of the final nails in the radio coffin. And that's already happening. So if you're running an FM or AM radio station right now, I think they probably already know it's time to look for a retirement plan and a nice place in Florida. A lot of my audience are people that are in phase two of their careers. They're people that are tired of this nine to five grind and they're looking to move in a new direction. And a big part of that is breaking into networking and either breaking into a new industry or finding people to work with or even using networking to jump to another company. What would you say to people that are at that phase in life, how they can start to use networking with strategy to get to their financial or lifestyle goals? Yeah, look, creating and maintaining relationships is the single biggest Archimedes lever that you can have. It's the single biggest lever that you can have, leverage you can have, etc. There's always the reason we have cliches like it's all about who you know is because we know that relationships dominate the day this is tribalism there's evolutionary psychology in here 
Relationships are always going to be what differentiates you at the top. In the middle, it will be work experience and talent and skill and things like that. But at the very top, it's about relationships. And at the very bottom, it's also about relationships. Because when you first start your job, you're about as skilled as the guy or girl sitting next to you in the cubicle next to you. It's about the relationships that create the opportunity to get on the projects you need to move forward, the right teams that you need that you know are going to be the winning teams, to work with the right kind of talent talent that gets to pick their own team. Those are the relationships that are going to set you apart and get you ahead. Further, in the middle, people tend to work and focus on skills acquisition, and I think people should be doing that the entire time. I don't think you should let your skill set lag by the wayside, but I do think you need to not think, oh, well, in a few years, I should start networking, or right after I get my website up, I should start networking for investors, or we need a prototype. You need to dig the well before you're thirsty. And a lot of people do not do that because they're afraid or they think it's going to be awkward or they don't have a skill set in place or they feel like they're not able to follow up or they're too busy. There's a million excuses. But the problem is, like I said in the beginning of the program, if you ignore this skill set for any reason, doesn't matter how valid the excuse is in your mind, you're just being willfully ignorant of the secret game being played around you. And you cannot make up for lost time easily because networking when you need something is not effective. If I start telling people that, oh, you know, I I really need this opportunity, who's going to help me? Somebody I've known for months or years, I've helped them a bunch, I've created a bunch of opportunity for them and with them, we watch football games on the weekend, I hate football, but, but you get the point, or we play racquetball or something like that. Is that person going to help me or is it going to be the person that I cold email out of the blue because now I'm ready for them to do me a favor? What's more effective? And the answer is so obvious, and yet people will tell themselves excuses all day long about how they don't have time or they don't want to or they don't want to seem schmoozy, which is a lack of skill and lack of strategy in this area. And it's always, always, always to their detriment. So I would say you need to learn these skills. You need to learn verbal and nonverbal communication. You need to learn how to follow up with people and on what time scale. You need to learn how to scale your network by offering value and helping people connect with one another and facilitate, create a platform where you are able to help other people connect. And if you don't put the work in, you will find out the hard way. A lot of the clients that come through AOC, of course, are young and, and we get a lot of that and we get a lot of special forces and intelligence guys and stuff like that and salespeople. But we also have our fair share of 30 and 40 something and even 50 something people that come in and go, I've been passed up for a management role three times or two times. I need to figure out what's going on here because it's not their Python skills or their JavaScript skills or their project management skills. There's something else going on here. And they finally realized, oh, I've been neglecting this skill in favor of hard and technical skills. I've been neglecting these soft skills for a decade or two, and they have to make up for lost time. And there's not that many ways to do that. So dig that well before you're thirsty or you will regret it. How can someone begin the process and actually discover value they have to offer people and begin to have a little relationship capital. This is exactly why we say that people need to be introducing folks to other people in their network. So if I'm a graphic designer and you need graphics, I can help you. But if I'm a graphic designer and you need a dentist, uh uh-oh, now I can't really help you directly. And that's okay because if I'm only helping people that I can help directly, 
we run into a big problem because we run out of scalability. As I mentioned before, I won't have time to help everybody like that, and I won't have the ability to help everybody like that either. So you need to figure out how to keep people in your orbit and in your network that you can then introduce to others. So if I'm a graphic designer and you need graphics, great, I can help you or I can refer you to somebody who can. If I'm a graphic designer and you need a dentist, well, now we're back to that origin story, and I need to be able to refer you to somebody or multiple people who might be able to help. And it's not just going to be graphics or a dentist. I mean, I'm looking at helping people who move to new cities find social circles and friends they should meet, people in my own town. I look for, oh, you're going to Bermuda? My friend actually owns a place there. Why don't I get you in touch with him? You have to look for ways to connect other people as much as humanly possible. And the more that you do that, I'd say try to make a couple of introductions every single week. The more that you do that, the more your social capital grows. So if you build that in as a habit and you actually schedule time on your calendar for an hour a week or something like that to create those introductions, that will be super helpful. Because if you're relying on the fact that you'll remember in the moment or I'll do it when I get a minute, well, we all know what happens to tasks that are someday maybe. It means never. And so you need to schedule it out. You need to look for ways that you can help other people even if they don't ask you. The way to do that is to anticipate people's needs. We just hired a writer here, and I don't hire anybody who cold pitches me. But this guy wrote in and said, Hi, I noticed a problem on your website. Here's how it would be fixed. I can fix it for you, or you can just forward the following instructions to whoever's managing your site. I did that. It worked. That got my attention. And then he said, hey, if I wrote an article that you helped me design for your blog with no links to my own content, just as a thank you for doing the show, would that be helpful? And I said, sure, send me a sample. And he sent me a sample of his work and it was good. And then he goes, I'm thinking about writing an article about this, 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 and this. I've already looked at your website. You don't include a lot of info there, but it seems very much in line with the, the branding and the direction that the show has been going recently. And I said, sure, send me a draft. Notice in each of these particular interactions, all I have to do is basically just say yes. I don't have to go through and do a bunch of work. I don't have to design something for him that he might screw up. Uh, there's no real time investment, so there's very little space where I can fail. He sends me a draft. I approve it. It goes up on the site. He goes, this is great. I really hope you like it. Can I do a couple more? And I said, sure. And he didn't ask for any money. This is still free. He writes a couple more. They're great. And then he says, if there's anything I can ever do to help you, please let me know. I would love to write for you guys. Here are my rates. I'm also happy to do stuff for free on and off as sort of one-off stuff if you need somebody else. Otherwise, have a great time here and I'll look for other stuff. And I didn't hire him right away. He found another couple little errors on the site. He found a couple little user experience bugs that we ended up fixing. And I said, all right. This guy's detail-oriented. He can create the product that he knows we need because he's evaluated our business and found that actual need. Not, hey, you need this because that's what I'm selling, but I've looked at your site and this is what I can provide. And now he's one of our main writers because I can rely on him. He's very responsive. He gets the brand. He anticipates our needs before I do. That's the kind of person that you want working with you. I wouldn't have hired him of course, if his resume said, you can depend on me, look at all this other stuff I've done. I wouldn't have given two you-know-whats about that. But the fact that he proved it to me was much more powerful than what most people do, which is send me their stinking resume along with a rate card and says, hey, if you want to 
if you want to have me write for you, here's what I cost, and you can go and click on these and read my work. Why would I do that? If you want a job with me, you've got to figure out how to save me time. I don't have to evaluate you. It's the other way around. And people who get that are worth their weight in gold. I think that's absolutely brilliant. Hearing from someone who's hiring, it's so useful to hear that someone actually went through that process of starting with the cold email and worked his way up to getting the job he wanted using the very techniques you're talking about. Yes. And not only that, but this was somebody who, frankly, would have been content enough just to help out the show and just to help out the brand. I realize that's not realistic for every single person all the time because, frankly, you're trying to get jobs and things like that. But you have to be willing to put yourself out there first and invest first. And that's the thing. A lot of people who email me their stuff or here, read this and here's what I cost if you want more. That's only useful if I'm looking for commodity writers. If I'm looking for somebody who can string words together, I'm not. I'm not looking for just a writer. I'm looking for a mind reading writer who, and what I mean by that is somebody who does all of the work and figures out exactly what I need. And then all I have to do is say yes and sign checks. That's the type of person you want in your team. And people who understand that those are the signals that employers are looking for are so valuable. You don't have to be a writer. You can be an artist. You can be a virtual assistant, things like that. I get pitches all the time from people who are like, oh, I, I would love to be your assistant. I've been assistants for these other people. I don't care. I want somebody who's going to go, hey, what's your current email workflow? Or here's my email workflow, or here's how I can make a typical email workflow that much faster. And here are the tools that I use to do it. And here are some percentages of speed, like measurable takeaways, not just I need a job and I'm a virtual assistant or an assistant. That stuff doesn't work. It doesn't work to get jobs with high performers. It only works at the low end of the market. And I think everybody listening to your show is trying to get at the top end of the market. They want to be on the high end of the market. They do not want to be trying to scramble to get gigs at the bottom because that's where the resume senders are and those are the people that have to compete on price. I will pay what you are worth. And if you can show me that you're worth a lot, that's what you'll get. I get a lot of messages that just say, hey, do you got any work? And it's usually one sentence. And I'm like, I don't even remember what you do. I don't know if you're a graphic designer or a programmer. And you're exactly right. I think the critical component is offering value or demonstrating that it's not a mass email. It doesn't feel very personal. Like this person just copying and pasting this message into every single Skype contact because they're out of money this month. It doesn't feel like anything beyond that. And so it's always been a struggle for me to hire people, to find really good talent that can perform the things I want. So I don't want to hire people that I have to heavily manage. I don't have time for that. I don't have time to do my job and check in on someone every two hours. It has to be somebody who can manage themselves. And I don't know exactly where your audience stands, but I want people who are so independent that they can do it on their own. And the flag for that, the green flag, I should say, for that is somebody who takes the initiative, does the work, shows me why I need what they have, does the project on spec and proves that I needed that. And everybody else is just playing second fiddle and they always will. So you really have to figure out how to create those relationships and keep them going. And I would say I don't even get one lead like that every year. It's more like one every two to three years do I find somebody who's just awesome. And employers of all kinds will snap those people up as fast as humanly possible. They will just get that as quickly 
as they possibly can because it is such a rare set of qualities. Um, I can count on one hand the number of people I've met in the entire 10 years that I've been running the Art of Charm that actually fit that that I've worked with. It's so rare. I want to thank you for spending so much time with us. We've been friends for a long time, but I appreciate you fitting me into your schedule. Yeah. Is there any last thing you'd like to share with my audience? I know they're going to be really excited. I very rarely do interviews. Out of 100 shows, this is the fourth or fifth interview. So this could be something real special. Thank you so much, man. It's been awesome to give this rant on your program, and I hope I've helped some of your audience and probably scared a few as well, but them's the breaks. So thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much. The stuff you talked about really dovetails with a lot of what we've been sharing as a community the last few months. Now, the best place to find you is artofcharm.com, and that's where they can find the podcast as well. That's right, theartofcharm.com slash podcast, or, I mean, you're listening to a podcast now, just uh, go on iTunes or whatever app you're using and search for The Art of Charm, and there we are. Thank you so much for being here, Jordan. It's an honor, as always, to talk with you. And I can't wait to share this amazing episode with my audience. I know they're going to love it, and they'll send a lot of feedback about how smart and wonderful and eloquent you were. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Serve No Master. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode. We'll be back tomorrow with more tips and tactics on how to escape that rat race. Head over to servenomaster.com forward slash podcasts now for your chance to win a free copy of Jonathan's bestseller, Serve No Master. All you have to do is leave a five-star review of this podcast. See you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Serve No Master podcast. Join me on my Facebook page at facebook.com backslash serve no master.